Welcome to the Brand Design Masters podcast, the show dedicated to helping you build the skills you need to design bulletproof brands for yourself, your business, and for the clients and customers you serve. And now, here's Philip. Before we jump into the show, I want to let you know that my signature course, Brand Strategy 101, is now open for enrollment inside the Brand Design Masters Academy. This is a foundational course for creative professionals and entrepreneurs who want to get started with brand strategy so you can sell bigger projects, increase your fees for the creative work you already do, and get paid for the thinking and advice you've probably been given away for free. The moment you enroll, you get immediate lifetime access to seven modules of training with over eight hours of instructional videos, 25 lessons in all, plus 24 downloadable strategy tools and conversation guides. In Brand Strategy 101, I've taken complex strategic methodologies used by the world's most respected global branding agencies and crafted them into a deceptively simple turnkey process and toolkit that you can use with your clients, even if you've never done brand strategy before or don't know where to start. Brand Strategy 101 draws from my 25 years of experience working with clients ranging from entrepreneurs to small to medium-sized businesses all the way up to the Fortune 100. So if you're ready to up your game and bulletproof your career and protect your business from the downward pricing pressure of sites like Fiverr and Upwork, then Brand Strategy 101 is the place to start. Just go to philipvandusen.com BS101 and enroll in Brand Strategy 101 today. Again, just go to philipvandusen.com BS101 and enroll now. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Brand Design Masters podcast. I am super excited because I am here today with Mark Drager. And Mark launched his creative production company, Fanta Media, back in 2006 and grew it to a little over $2 million in revenue and then slowly watched as it all crumbled around him. Through the hard lessons learned and working not to make the same mistakes twice, today Fanta focuses less on keeping the machine fed and more on doing the extraordinary work with really cool people. Mark happens to also have wrote me probably one of the best guest pitch emails I've ever gotten. So he's an awesome copywriter, great personality, and I'm really looking forward to talking to him. So welcome, Mark. Oh, Philip. Thank you for having me, man. So why don't you share a little bit about your personal life, just allow listeners to get to know you a little bit better. Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm I'm now in my late 30s, which I mean, gosh, I think no matter what age you are, you feel old, don't you? <laughs> so speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I've been married to my wife for uh, we've been together for 22 years now. Uh, we were high school sweethearts, and uh, we didn't get married in high school, but high school sweethearts. Four kids, ranging from the age of eight to almost 16. And as you mentioned, I started a firm. At 23 years of age, it was 2006, my wife had no income because we were so young. I quit my $45,000 a year job living in Toronto, which is like a pretty high cost area to live. So I quit that job and we had my three-month-old daughter and I thought, you know what, I'm going to go start my own agency. Yeah, great timing. (laughs) Yeah, great timing, great timing. You need pressure sometimes in life to really make things happen, don't you? Yeah, set yourself up for success. You started Fanta. What did Fanta do? What kind of agency were you? Yeah, so back then, 2006, I don't know if people remember, but the internet was a very different place. Facebook was not a thing yet. I mean, you could just start to put photos up. There was no social media. YouTube hadn't been bought by Google yet. People were still making stuff. And we were a video production agency. So I went to film school. I graduated uh, going into corporate, working in internet marketing, and uh, and doing all kinds of documentary, corporate type videos. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to start this agency. We're going to focus mainly on video production. 
And uh, back then we were still encoding things to flash files and putting them on streaming servers and doing all this kind of stuff. And uh, through kind of six, seven and eight, started to really focus on corporate communications. You know, go where, go where the money is. That's what everyone told me. And, and, and businesses, big businesses have money. And we weren't, I wasn't, the firm, you know, it was just me. We, I was not creative enough to do ad campaigns at the time. We weren't going to do, we weren't going to steal stuff from the agencies of record. Uh, so we did internal communications and then communications became marketing. And then over time, marketing became advertising. And then by 2013, 14, 15, we find ourselves doing national commercial campaigns. We're doing nice. huge creative work. Um, we're not only working with the agency of records for these large international brands, we're suddenly finding ourselves pitching <laughs> for the business. And uh, we can talk about what happened over that, that kind of 10-year period to the agency model, but we were able to ride the wave up as, as the big agencies continued to move down to focus more on production. We were a production-first company. And if if we can just sell strategy and sell creative, we already had production in the bag. So we were able to grow our business up until, as you mentioned, you know, I had this massive machine, multi-million dollar company, seven-figure payroll that I had to keep fed. And when you find yourself doing hundreds of projects a year that you don't really want to do, but you need the revenue... You know, the projects you do want to do, you never have the time to really commit to. And it's just, you start to really get burned out. Hamster wheel. Yeah. Yeah. So when you said it started to crumble, how did it crumble? What's crumbling look like? Looking back, a series of maybe poor decisions, but mainly what I believe kills more businesses than anything else from an entrepreneur point of view is boredom. Hmm. One thing I love about the agency side of things is rather than build one business, I get to build my business and I get to build every client's business. I get to work on different verticals and in different industries on different projects of different scale, attack all these different challenges. It's almost like a consultancy. It's a lot of fun. But once you've done things, you know, what are you chasing? Most people entering our world want the bigger brand, the bigger project, the bigger budget, the prestige, the awards. Cool. I was I was never really motivated by that. I was always more focused on producing work that works. You know, I wanted things to be as effective as possible and as efficient as possible. But once you've done a project a few hundred times, and once you've worked in a few different industries, I mean, where do you go and how do you grow? And so the first thing is we found that with the commoditization of video, being a video centric agency at that point, people would come to us for any work that was video first, and then if it had creative or if it had display or if it had digital or if it had native or anything else, we would own the whole project because it was video first. But if it wasn't video first, there was no real reason to come and work with us. And so we started to expand our services. You know, we started to take what made us so great at the strategy and creative side of video as a single medium and start to move it out to, you know, display landing pages, sales pages, presentations, live events, and what have you. And I kind of underestimated <laughs> when you're a specialist agency with a process that you can do, like with your eyes closed, moving out and now introducing seven, eight, 10 different. You like de-niched. I did. We generalized and it helped for a very short time. The client's when they realized that we were now moving into more areas, they loved it because we hired up and spent a lot of time and money starting to hire up those specialty skills, but they didn't give us any projects related to it. They just gave us more video. <laughs> we got this huge bump in revenue and it really helped us, but it was kind of short-lived. And so we de-niched, we became more general so that way we could have a bigger seat at the table. I underestimated the operational side of things. I mm. underestimated the complexity of becoming now a specialist in six, seven different areas. I'm a visionary. I think it's scale. 
So when we have the heads of each department and we have the systems and we have the clients and we can support it, naturally it's going to work. How do we get there? I mean, I, I don't know. I underestimated how hard that would be. That was like the series of reactions to what was taking place in the marketplace that had us start to you know, basically see the decline. We eroded our current clientele. The people who knew us as the video people no longer knew us as the video people. So mm. we stopped getting so much of that business. Um, I was very distracted, focused on all of these different areas. Because we were in kind of startup mode, we were doing a bunch of things well, but not great, which means you're always putting out fires. And over the course of two, three, four years of this, I mean, it just it just grinds you down not to be great at something that you feel like you should be good at. So did you tighten it back up? I mean, you're still in existence, right? Yeah. So COVID helped, I think, like a lot of us, you know, I am very, very thankful for being forced to take a step back, being forced to question why we do the things we do and whether we wanted to or not, because I was very unhappy for a very long time. I'd come back from vacation, driving into the office, not wanting to be there, not excited about the work. Those little cues that I was ignoring for so long. And then suddenly now we had a lot, we had half a million dollars of work get put on hold when COVID hit, like stuff that was contracted. And we were expected to carry our team. <laughs> we were expected to carry our team <laughs> while clients are like, like, hell, well, you know what? Um, I know we were supposed to launch this campaign in May. How about we think about September? Yeah. Okay. Am I supposed to just keep everyone on standby between now and then? So it forced us to really restructure the business, to really look at who we were working with. And, and ultimately, you know, over the course of about a year, I realized, hey, there were things that made us successful. There were things we were great at. And I think we got distracted along the way. And so we've just gone back. At a point, if you asked me a year ago, I would have said that we failed. Mm. I don't think we did because we learned so much when we spent two years and we went through four different performance marketing teams trying to crack performance-based ROI-based marketing or advertising. Now, as a creative person, I can tell you the KPIs that matter. I can tell you what platforms are working or not working. I can tell you because I can read reports from the media team in terms of what's just BS or vanity metrics or what's real. So working on multidisciplinary, working on more medium, working on performance-based marketing, we've gotten rid of all of that. We've gone back to our roots, back to our core. We're very, very small now. Before COVID, 24 full-time team, we're now down to four people. And it's just so much nicer not to have to put out fires all the time and also recognize that everything along the way has helped us become more strategic and better creatives. When I was at a big global agency, I was seeing our big global clients start to use smaller and smaller virtual agencies and consultancies. And they were giving decent projects to remote teams who were senior people, but they didn't have brick and mortar and they use modular teams for projects. And then when I went over to the client side at one of the two biggest soft drink manufacturers in the world, I did the same thing. I was on the client side and I was giving big global projects to six-person teams in Vermont who didn't even have an office. Yeah, it's crazy what happened. Yeah, so there's been a massive shift in the agency paradigm to embrace the consultant class, really. And that's been brought about by a lot of things. There's always downward pricing pressure on design as video and design get commodified. But it also, if you can get really senior, excellent work faster and cheaper from a modular consultancy team, why go with a global brick and mortar agency. It just doesn't make any sense. So there are a lot of things that I think have been really changing in that the agency paradigm. Are you sensing the same thing? And do you feel like that's continuing? 
oh, I've watched it throughout and we saw the red flags happen in again 14 15 16 17 because we were we were a bit unique the way that i built my agency so most production companies either do not have full-time staff because they're just repping people and then they'll take a cut 20 percent, 30 percent, or whatever to rep someone very very low overhead and then they can scale up based on project needs but they don't have any client side stuff they don't have strategy they don't have creative they don't have accounts agencies traditional agencies had creative strategy and accounts but zero production capabilities. And, and even on the agency side, the model is that you have a very, very small uh, top of pyramid with high cost, high skill, high experience people, but you know your executive account managers that are working with people that are impressing people that are having the great conversations, they're turning it over to juniors because there is no way to be able to cover the very, very high cost of operations without having junior people actually do all of the billable hours. Right. I only noticed this because 90% of our work was client-focused. Like we worked directly with clients, they came to us, we were niche, so we're strategy, we're creative, we're production, we would deliver it to you. But we would occasionally work with large content agencies or large agencies, and working with them was like, this doesn't make any sense to me. Like we're so used to working direct with client. It doesn't make any sense to me that I could sit down with the client and with the executive team or the strategy team, have the most amazing conversation. And then we're halfway through production and I'm having the account manager call me up and say, why did this happen? And I go, your team walked through it, your team signed off on it. I literally had an executive tell me this, Mark, don't you know that my team doesn't know anything? This is your job. To, and, and in that moment, I realized, whoa, there's something wrong here. There's this disconnect. And so we started to see that the large agencies had to get more tactical. On top of that, large corporations were building out internal teams through 16, 17, 18, because they felt, why pay for an agency when we could do it ourselves? Ah, they underestimated how hard it was to, to get output and actually hold on to people. And at the same time, as you mentioned, the small firms like ourselves were in being invited to tables that we previously didn't have a seat at. I found myself at one point against Havas. Now, I don't know if you guys know Havas or not. I mean, New York agency, Toronto agency, they're one of the, you know, they're, I don't know if they're Omnicom agency or what have you, but we're pitching to be agency of record for all of this broadcast radio and digital campaign for this large international insurance company. And it's like me and my freelance creative director and my head of production, the three of us, and we're up against like Havas flies people in from, you know, CDs in from New York and they're doing all this stuff. And ultimately we didn't win the business. And that makes sense to me. Literally, it came down to everyone on the team responsible for delivering the work voted for us. The senior executives who were not responsible for delivering the work, they voted for bench strength and, and brand name. And, and I get that. I think that has shifted a lot over the last 10 years and it's only accelerated. It's only accelerated due to COVID, due to remote work, due to the fact that teams have to get more out of less. And as the younger generations of Zs and even millennials are now in a position of being brand managers, of, of controlling budgets, they are more and more comfortable with small niche teams who are very, very good at executing as opposed to maybe this more like cover your ass mentality that used to exist. That's totally it. And it's very much, and I think that's to a certain extent, the older guard. And it's like the old saying, you know, no one ever got fired for hiring IBM. It's the same thing. You know, it's like no one ever got fired by, you know, hiring a global agency because there's a safety in that even though you may be paying for brick and mortar and people that you're never going to use and that aren't going to ultimately benefit you. 
I remember a project back in 16 where the agency came to us for a one minute motion graphic explainer video. So we write a one minute script, we pull stock music, we design it. They wanted 12 rounds of revisions on this thing because they wanted each client round, they wanted their own round. We priced it all out. I think our cost was like 16 grand to do this one minute custom video for a bank. By the time the client saw the budget, $64,000. And the client says to the agency, $64,000 for a one minute explainer video. I could just go to any one of my other vendors and I could get it done for like less than 20 grand, which makes sense because we were doing all the work and it was only $16,000. That world could not and cannot continue right. indefinitely. Like, I mean, the corporate clients know what things should cost in their mind. Let's pivot a little bit. Let's talk about the Mark Drager brand. So you have an agency, you have a podcast, the We Do Hard Things podcast. You have a podcast that you co-host with Evan Carmichael, and you also have a YouTube channel. And so how and when did you start leveraging content marketing or content in order to build your own personal brand presence? Why did you go into that world? Was it to do business development for your agency? Was it to establish you know, expert credibility. That would be smart. <laughs> That's what I did. But I mean, was it to establish some sort of expert credibility as an independent? What was your thinking around it? We built our agency 100% on SEO and PPC. We became a million dollar agency based on Google advertising and SEO. And then in May of 2012, uh, there was an update to Google and we lost all of our rankings. I mean, at one point we were generating like 10 leads a day. <laughs> so we could be pretty picky and choosy with the work we got and we could charge a lot of money. And then it all disappeared. And that was when I realized, oh, uh, what is the new world? This is 2012, 10 years ago, content marketing, right? Putting up blog posts, putting out content, recording stuff, doing video, being a leader. And so that was kind of my first move into it. And it was through the Fanta brand. So through Fanta Media, all of our work was focused on that. And at a certain point, our first podcast, the Not So Corporate Podcast, was focused specifically to help people in corporate video or in video production companies get better. And all of our content up until about 17 was focused on that. And it made sense because I was dedicated 100% to building Phantom Media as an agency. I'd been there for a long time. It was my thing. It was my identity. It was my legacy. It was the thing I was building. What I realized, though, was that anything that we do or own is simply an asset. And rather than be the type of small business owner or entrepreneur where this business is my identity and it is everything that I do, I started to shift more into, well, perhaps this is better run as an asset. Perhaps this is better run as something that I love and we can help with. But by making it not quite so personal to me, it actually allowed me to make, well, I thought at the time, more strategic business decisions, hire up people differently and what have you. And the other thing I realized is as we were struggling to generalize as an agency, <laughs> Like I mentioned, month after month, quarter after quarter, year after year, there was a lot of stuff we weren't doing well. And, and it just, I, I just wanted something that was for me. When you spend all day, every day building other people's stuff, at a certain point, you know, I've written for so many other people in their voices. What's my voice? I have produced so many other brands. What would I be allowed to do if it was just for me? And so that's really, ultimately, it was a playground. And then the playground was kind of a hobby. And then the hobby became a bit more serious. And then I started getting feedback from people saying like, hey, this is pretty good. And so I thought, well, what if I spent more than 5% of my time on it? And so ultimately, that was the journey. It was very, very slow. And I wish it was more strategic like you did it. But it was more just because I wanted a place I could play. Yeah. 
I mean, I did it just because my client base of 25 years were all Fortune 100 companies, and I wanted to work with the small to medium-sized businesses and entrepreneurs, and I knew that none of my network were going to feed me new business. It just wasn't the same world. So I had to start getting present and visible in a completely different context. And also it was the renaissance period of content marketing. And I just realized I had a lot to share, a lot to teach. And if I could put it all out there for free and clients could find me rather than the other way around, then it would work. And it happened to work for me. And it was a lot of fun. You know, I like putting out content. It works for everyone though. How many years into this are you now? Six. But it's a slow burn, buddy. I tell you, content marketing is not for the faint of heart. You know, you spend the first good year, year and a half, if you're lucky, talking to an empty room. That is one of the things that separates the men from the boys and the girls from the women in content marketing is speaking to an empty room for a year and a half. I say this line all the time and I remind myself of it. I think that most people sit on their greatest things waiting for the audience to be there. Like, I don't want to give away this magic when there's no one listening. I don't want to give away this great tip. As soon as I have a thousand subs or as soon as I have 10,000 followers and I'll share the real stuff. If you don't give people a reason to follow you, they will never follow you. So you have to actually, to your point, like speak to the empty room. You have to show up whether people are listening or not. I was hired once to speak at a conference. Great, I got paid a lot of money to go speak at a conference. I didn't realize that I'd be delivering 15-minute sessions every hour in a trade show environment. So I thought I was getting a breakout room. I thought they were bringing me people and I thought I was speaking to an audience. I'm on the floor giving a presentation about the most strategic ways to build out target audience personas as people are walking by. Looking for snacks. (laughs) But damn, did it make me better oh, and go. more comfortable the next yeah. time I spoke. <laughs> and you're totally right. It's like if people go back and watch the first 50 videos I put out before I had any subscribers, well, number one, they suck. Yes. And I'm my mouth is dry and I'm stuttering and all that sort of stuff. But I was sharing some of the most pivotal secrets of branding that I had learned in 25 years. And it was seriously great content. But today, no one has seen it because no one goes back and watches those first 50 videos. This episode of the Brand Design Masters podcast is sponsored by Bring Your Own Laptop. BYOL.me is a top-tier Adobe application video training website featuring Daniel Scott. Daniel's a certified Adobe trainer and keynote speaker at the Adobe Max conference every year. At BYOL.me forward slash Philip, you can learn everything from the basics to advanced aspects of your favorite Adobe applications, all for one low monthly subscription fee. Visit byol.me forward slash Philip, P-H-I-L-I-P. Again, that's byol.me forward slash Philip. I just know you're going to be amazed at Bring Your Own Laptops courses. Let's talk about the kind of psychological, emotional side of this, is that one of the things that you had said in your pitch email to me was that you, quote, woke up every morning fighting the feeling of not being good enough. And so before we even hit record, we were talking a little bit about imposter syndrome or, you know, that sense of motivation or not feeling good enough. Talk a little bit about how that has played in your career and through that arc of Fanta, but then also in your development of your personal brand. Yeah, I think early on, it helped drive me in a pretty unhealthy way. And, and maybe that's common for the young, but fear of failure, fear of letting people down, the constant anxiety and like dopamine hits of being an entrepreneur and just trying to stay on top of things and make sure that you can deliver. 
there's a certain amount of performance anxiety that is very, very healthy to ensure that you show up and you have done what you need to do. But another point, it becomes unhealthy. And I've been working on this for the last few years and I'm getting better, but it's very hard for me to believe in myself as much as other people seem to believe in me. It's very hard for me to see my gifts as clearly as other people seem to see them. And so over the last number of years, I've worked very hard actually to surround myself with cheerleaders, with people who will be ruthlessly honest with me to help tear me down. Evan Carmichael is one of those people. He just the other day grabbed one of my random podcast episodes and he gave me a one hour breakdown and he's only 14 minutes into the episode. <laughs> like, like he was able to fill an hour of breaking me down and he's only 14 minutes into one episode. So that's great. But at the same time, Evan is one of my biggest cheerleaders, right? And so I desperately want to feel good enough. Don't we all? Don't we all want to know that our work is not going to disappoint and it's going to work when the occasion calls for it, we will rise to that occasion and we will be celebrated and it'll all work out. And now that I've been watching this, I realize that actually almost always happens. Maybe not in the time you want, maybe not the way you want, but eventually you actually hit that moment. But for me, the fear of not hitting that moment, right? The fear of jumping out of the plane and the parachute not opening, the fear of something going wrong is actually the thing that slows me down more than anything else. And I've hit the point now in my life where I realize it's bullshit. I realize it's but not I true. haven't yet quite cracked how to emotionally not feel it or to be able to cycle out of it quickly, if you know what I mean. I do know what you mean. And I think the idea of not getting to the point where you don't even enter into the cycle is unrealistic because I think everybody does. And even, you know, I've worked with some of the biggest CEOs in the world and I have found that in the C-suite, there's more imposter syndrome than you can shake a stick at. It's almost like the higher you go, the more accomplished you are, the deeper that imposter syndrome is. I work with a lot of senior executives, coaches, but here's the thing. It's being able to develop the muscle of recognizing when you are slipping into that mode of thinking, which is a cyclical, repetitive mode of thinking, and recognizing when you are feeding that beast or nurturing that thought cycle, and when you are just recognizing it, acknowledging it, and moving out of it. That's the muscle that's the hardest, and I think personally, a lifelong effort, is to be able to recognize it quicker and put it on the shelf faster. But to expect that it never happens, I think is completely unrealistic. I'll give you an example. When you meditate, I've been practicing meditation for a while, not as consistently as I like, but one of the things about meditation is that you try to clear your mind. You try to quiet your mind. And your mind is not built to be quiet. Your mind is meant to process shit like all the time. And if it doesn't have shit to process, it makes up shit to process. And so you can be sitting there meditating and you find a sense of peace and you're not thinking about anything and you're there. And then like 30 seconds later, you kind of realize I'm thinking about the shoes that I was going to get on Amazon and when they're going to come in today. And you recognize that and you go, okay, stop thinking about the shoes on Amazon and go back into the quiet place. But it's literally a cycle of doing that over and over and over and over and over because your mind will never be quiet. Never is. I was working through a book. I think it may have been Dave Hollis's book, but there was this idea as well. I, th I think what you're describing is you can watch the emotion or you can watch the feeling, the anxiety, the thought wash over you. You can acknowledge it, but you can choose to just let it pass. 
that's something that I've actually worked on because I have generalized anxiety disorder. I was just diagnosed last year. I didn't realize this is part of the cycling between excitement and then anxiety and then depression and, and what have you. But one of the greatest lessons or things that I've done is just to say, oh, hey, anxiety, I see you. What's up? Like, what do you think I'm not seeing? What am I not noticing? What do I need to do? And then I can look at it and go, oh, there's something there. I better act, take some action, feel better about it. Or, eh, it's total bullshit. <laughs> like, let it go. Uh, and that's helped a bit. Yeah. One of the books that's been really impactful in my life is Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now, which is very much about that recognizing of the now, what is in the current, not projecting into the future, not rehashing the past. And is there anything that I can do about this thing right in this very moment? And if there's not, let it go. Like you said, let it wash over you until there is a moment when I can actually take action on it. Rather than it being in the constant spin cycle in your brain and just kind of wearing down the bearings, which is what it has a tendency to do when you just worry about things in the future or rehash things in the past. There's another really amazing book called, and it's, it's such a stupid kind of self-helpy kind of California kind of title to this book, but it's called You Can Feel Good Again, but it's by a psychologist named Richard Carlson. And he also wrote Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, and it's all small stuff, which is really, you know, kind of New York Times forever bestseller book. Anyway, this guy was a psychologist and he kind of breaks down cognitive behavioral therapy and traditional modes of therapy, which are all about kind of rehashing the past and working through it and working through it. And he takes the perspective much more of a kind of Richard Carlson, which is recognize the downward cycles and acknowledge them, but then move past them and don't nurture them, don't feed them, because that's what keeps you into that negative cycle and drives you downward into depression. So where and how did you come to that realization? And did you, I know this is getting really personal, but did you seek professional help? Did you kind of acknowledge it on your own and develop some sort of self-care that has helped you process that? I've always known that I've been a very anxious person. My mom used to come in and do all of our administrative work at Fanta. She'd come in every second Thursday, she'd do administrative work. I remember there being a time where I turned to her and I was like, you know, when your chest tightens with anxiety and with worry, I remember telling her one time in passing where it's like, I, I feel like this all the time and that's not normal, is it? <laughs> and I said it like that, like, like, surely this isn't normal or good. And I was much heavier then than I am now. I was not exercising. I had young kids. I was focused on this business. I knew that every time people would talk about stress killing and all of this stuff, that it was just like I was living a very, very poor way of living, very stressful. Fast forward to my friend, Evan. We're talking about stuff and he's noticing these patterns. The more that you work with someone, the more that you come to know them, you can see the patterns month over month, quarter over quarter, year over year. You can see this with your spouse, your business partners or what have you. He approached me and he said, Mark, I think you're bipolar. You, you cycle through these excitements and then these depressions. And, and I was raised with someone who had the mania side of bipolar and I did some research on it and I knew I'm not bipolar, but I was cycling so quickly from hope to despair, from excitement to stress. So the more research I did, I actually thought I might have borderline personality disorder, which is a personality disorder that you can cycle through over the course of a day from one extreme to the next. And so I actually went and saw a therapist simply so that way I could get a diagnosis to try and understand what this is and, and how the things that other people might say could hold you back could actually be a superpower. Through the whole thing, took weeks and weeks and weeks and all of that stuff. Turns out I just have anxiety. And the cycling was... I think this may have even been during the pandemic I did all of this stuff, but it's this big global thing happening. Uh, my business is, as we mentioned, crumbling around us. We're having to make all these hard decisions. I'm having to carry all these people. Hey, Mark, you're not bipolar. 
you don't have borderline personality disorder, you're just under incredible amounts of stress and you're in fight or flight mode all the time. And your anxiety, which is looking to the future and allowing the uncertainty of the future to worry you. And when you get so burnt out about worrying about the future, what we do as people is we start to look to the past and become sentimental. Being depressed is being caught in the past. Being anxious is being caught in the future. Mm, I love that. And so that breakdown for my therapist was like, this is the issue. It's not, you're not cycling through anything other than uncertainty of the future, sentimental about the past. And when I heard that, I've basically spent the last year and I've grown so much by just learning that looking back, everything makes sense, right? We can connect the dots. If I asked you how you met your spouse, nine times out of 10, you'd probably start with something like, it's kind of a funny story, right? Like, you know, they were a friend of a friend and then we were at a cousin, I was at a barbecue and then this happened and then eight months later that happened. And like, it's this kind of a funny story how this happened. And that's what happens with life. And when we look back, we connect these dots and we go, wasn't that a funny story? How did you get that first job at an agency? Well, actually, I, I showed up and I sat outside for three days and I begged them for an internship and then it turned into blah, blah, blah. Like, cool. I love it. It's, it's beautiful. When we look forward, though, do we allow ourselves to have any it's kind of a funny story moments? Or do we hope and desperately want to know that each step, each part along the way is going to be the plan that we want? And if it doesn't work out, then we are failures and we are. So I've spent the last year embracing the like, if I look back, it's kind of a funny story. If I look forward, it's going to be a funny story, too. Right. So let's just stop putting so much pressure on the uncertainty of the future. That's the thing that really helped me the most. A great quote that I heard from an old Paul Pressel, the CEO of Gap, who said, great careers are more like webs than ladders. And it's something that I really embrace because when I look back on my career, my career was not a linear ladder path. Yeah, I definitely moved up and accomplished a lot of things, but there were a lot of like serious right angle turns in there that I was not expecting, did not anticipate. When they came across my path, I thought about where it might be able to take me or what skill it might be able to give me that I could then leverage in a different way a little later. And that's how I have moved through my career. It was not linear. And so I think what you're talking about is really smart in the fact that as you think about the future, you just have to have those antenna up for like, what is this red herring that's getting thrown in my path right now? What does that mean? What could that mean? If I leveraged it, if I took the opportunity and tried it, where might it lead me that I'm not even expecting, that I'm not even knowing right now? And when I counsel and coach younger creative professionals, that's what I always try and instill in them is that you can plan the shit out of your path, but chances are it's not going to happen the way you're planning it. But you just have to be really open to those kind of odd right angle web turns that are going to come your way because they're going to make your career stronger ultimately. And they're also going to lead you to someplace that you may not ever have expected. Now, I, I will say you have to have a goal and you have to have a visual in your mind of, of what you're working towards. Yes, absolutely. But then be totally open to the how and the right. where and the when. Right. And if you are able to live that way, it's less stressful. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about the future. We were just talking about the future. What's happening right now is really fascinating. There's a lot of things that are kind of like just peeking their head around the marketing, branding, digital corner, right? We have Web 3.0 that's showing up. We have NFTs that have been blowing up, but are now interestingly going through a bit of a dip. And the metaverse is kind of something that everyone's talking about, like, what's that going to be? So 
in terms of what we're seeing out there on the horizon in terms of media and branding and marketing, what's piquing your interest or what are you seeing that you think is noteworthy? I am so not an early adopter and I'm not a trend hacker. I'm not an early adopter. I realized a long time ago that I get very excited about all these new things and I ignore the fundamentals. Mm. I love fundamentals, right? Like, like if, if we wanted to, if we all wanted to enter, let's lose 10 pound challenge, we would all look for all the fancy apps and fancy ways. And what about this diet? And I read this guy's doing this and this woman's doing that or what have you. But the fundamentals would be just move more, eat less, sleep well, and drink water. Like you do that. And after a few weeks, you're going to lose weight and feel great. So the same thing is true with marketing, with advertising, with branding. Let's do let's do the basic things really, really well, because we can always get excited and distracted later once we build upon those things. And so what I'm actually most excited about is over the last few years, just the number of service providers or tools that allow us to have really deep insight on audiences. So it's not just about demographics or even just basic segmentation. It's not about persona development, but like our firm, for example, we license access to tracking 250 million Americans on a billion devices on a trillion data touch points per day. So we didn't used to have access to that kind of information. Now it's like, great, what do we do with all that information? But where the tools have developed is they're really, really good at splicing and dicing and segmenting things so that way we can find things. I get excited. For example, we wanted to look at high net worth individuals in California. Let's just look at California, anyone who's independent in terms of making their own money, self-employed or what have you, and they earn more than $250,000 household income. 40% of them are Asian. I didn't know that. Right now, does that help us? Does that hurt us? Does that matter? I don't know. It's just a data point I pulled. But without having access to this information, I would not have known that. And I could not have decided if it's important or not. And I couldn't have tailored my visuals, my messaging, my brand, or what have you to, to speak to this group of people who, if that was my target, that's important. What's the difference between Spanish-speaking Americans in Texas versus maybe other general populations? We can do all of this stuff now. We can find out the social channels people are going to, the publications that they're looking at. We can find second or third degree versions of people who follow this person and follow that person. What are the things that they have in common? The competitor insight that we can get these days, not to figure out what they're doing so we can copy them, but to figure out what they're doing so we can find our unique place, our unique voice, uh, our unique opportunity. I had a client who was developing this really high-end custom cooler specifically for Tesla owners. And we were looking at Yeti and what Yeti coolers have done over the years. But Yeti is so far ahead of my client. It doesn't matter what Yeti's doing today. Where did they start? But then we were able to like pull supercharging locations across the US. And we were able to say, well, if there's a lot of supercharging locations, there's probably a high density of electric vehicle owners. And then we overlapped with that zip code addresses for the earning potentials based on neighborhood. And like, we were not able to do this stuff five or 10 years ago. We could do it in mailing lists and general things, but that, that is the stuff that excites me the most because I love a perfectly crafted message or, or proposition or a perfect piece. But we have to recognize that for our work to be effective, it has to be the right message or the right visual in the right context, saying the right thing at the right moment for the right audience. And once you can get that specific, that's the stuff that excites me. So you've been talking a lot about quantitative data, and we are all drowning in quantitative data, right? You can look at demographics and gather incredible amounts of information, but when it comes down to it, 
consumers generally make decisions on the reptilian brain. They make it on qualitative emotions. How do you balance in the qualitative or do your qualitative research to partner with that quantitative information? Great question, because what we were doing in the past is we weren't leveraging and the qualitative, quantitative stuff. The reason I don't use those terms is because I confuse them all the time. One's focus groups, one's polls. That's how I think of it. (laughs) Exactly. We were doing focus groups and things like that. So on the other side of things, we do a lot of target insight research based off of editorials and publications. So for example, we had a client who had this really amazing hairbrush that is a detangling hairbrush. Now, when it comes time for us to be able to brand this, package this for women, well, who deals with tangles more than anyone else? It depends on the coarseness of your hair, depends on your ethnicity. So then we start to get into, okay, well, what's the difference between someone with maybe European descent versus an African-American? And then with our African-American communities, what does hair actually mean culturally to them? And so we go through and we'll look at newspapers, we'll look at publications, we'll go to the Atlantic, we'll do keyword research. We will pull from the last six, five, six, seven years articles or editorials or YouTube videos or what have you to actually look at what people are speaking about because you can learn a lot from it. Mm -hmm. But then we go to comments. You want the best poll? Go find a video that's representative of the community you want to talk to. Go to Reddit, go to YouTube, go to these places, read the comments and people will tell you what they think about it. Maybe they're trolling. Maybe they're not. They're going to tell you because they're cloaked in being anonymous. Mm -hmm. And so once you have the data and you're able to get a sense of the zeitgeist and you're looking at these comments, is it perfect? Is it scientific? I don't think so. But is anything we do? Qualitative is never scientific. Yeah. (laughs) And that's fascinating to kind of find the qualitative, not in human interactions and focus groups directly, interviews, et cetera, but to find it in comments where people are anonymous and they are sharing unfiltered, as we know the comment sections are. And then you test it, right? And then you take right. you take those headlines, you take the pieces, and then you just run some micro campaigns, you test it in real time and you see what's working. And that process is, is very, very easy to replicate. So what's in the future for Mark? What are you working on now? What's coming out? Well, uh, at Phantom Media, you know, we I just described this multi-year kind of pivot and, and niching down. I'm most excited about a brand strategy process that we've developed that I kind of just spoke a little bit to, but uh, we call it Core 3. And what we do is we help speakers and uh, entrepreneurs, consultants, and coaches, but we help them develop really, really powerful personal brands using these three elements. So helping them define who they are and what they want. Most people are fuzzy on that. Accessing all of this audience or customer data so that way we can understand what the audience cares about most. And then looking at competitive intel to determine what will help us stand out. Once you have those three components nailed down, you really know what you want and that's defined, and you really understand what the audience wants and what your competition isn't doing, the path forwards kind of just reveals itself in terms of what you have to do. And so I'm really excited about that because it's a process we've used time and time again on our corporate side Mm -hmm. with our national campaigns. Like we've done this, every single national campaign goes through similar processes. We've now tailored it specifically for the speaker or the coach, the consultant, the entrepreneur for the personal brand. And so I love that. And then I still love to play with We Do Hard Things and interviewing people and connecting. Next month, I get to travel a bit to the US and I can't speak about it right now, but but I kind of, through my network, you talk about the power of your network. I have a friend who's helping someone with a book launch. 
a name that everyone will know. And there's this private room with this private dinner. And I kind of leaned on my friend and said, hey, how can I serve you? <laughs> like, 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 how can I get into the room? What can I do? So I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. And it's one of those, I didn't used to do this at all in my business. I would stay in my office. I would stay with my network. I would stay. You talked about your Fortune 100 clients, and then you had to go out and do this whole thing. I did it last August. I helped Les Brown. I don't know if people are familiar with Les Brown. He's like an OG in terms of the motivational space. He was doing a live event in Queens, New York. I was working with their team. I said, I will be there in Queens, New York for you in the middle of COVID, traveling in the pandemic and all of that stuff. I just took the risk to put myself out there and I'm doing more and more of that. That's the thing that makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> Sounds awesome. Okay, so now I always end my podcast with a series of rapid fire round questions and I did not hit you to the fact that I was gonna do this and sometimes I do. Okay, so here we go. 10 quick questions and then one big one at the end. What's your spirit animal? Wolf. Morning person or night person? Morning, but not by choice. Beach or mountains? Beach. Dog person or cat person? Uh, oh gosh, I don't like animals, but dog person, I've got an amazing dog. What's yours? <laughs> I don't like animals. I've got an amazing dog. What's your secret talent most people don't know you can do? I can bang out a song pretty quickly on a piano by figuring out their chord progression. Love it. Favorite song of all time? Um... Or favorite song such, of all time today. Such, such pressure, favorite <laughs> song this of always, all time. This always throws everybody. It's the hardest question. Yeah, because it's just, there's so much good stuff. I'm like such a music person. I am going to say, Don't Stop Me Now by Queen. Okay. Favorite place in the world? My, my grandparents have a condo on the beach in Florida. My favorite place in the world is the Atlantic, Florida, on the beach. Love it. What's the one thing you would love to master? I would, and, and this is what I'm doing. I want to be like the greatest host. You know, I've, I've been watching and analyzing you actually, because I do this naturally. You're really good at this. And I kind of gregariously get my way through things and just count on natural talent, but I'm watching really sharp, clever people and how they do it. And so I want to be the world's greatest interviewer, host, conversationalist, whatever that might be. Cool. I love that. Who's your hero? My grandfather. What's the one thing you would tell your 20-year-old self? Don't worry, you got this. All right. Love that. Okay. Final one. And this is the big one. Do you have a personal mantra or a manifesto you try to live your life by? I do. And it's mostly reassuring. Uh, you can't see it on my wall, but I've got this giant poster that says, think big, be bold, say yes. Because by nature, I think way smaller than I should. I know that I'm nowhere near as bold as I could be by nature. And honestly, I pretty much say no to everything all the time. <laughs> and yet, when I think really big, bigger than I'm comfortable with, when I take bold action, and when I just say yes, my wife says, hey, let's go do this. Yes. Okay, let's go do it. That's fine. You want to buy me that shirt? Let's go do it. You want to do this shirt? Like if I say yes, it's always better in the end. So that's my mantra. I love it. So Mark Dreger, how can people engage with you? Where do you want to be found? Well, the best thing to do is if you want to head over to Instagram, you can find me at Mark Drager. Uh, I don't have a bot. I don't have a VA. If you like our content, if you DM me, I'm there. Drop me a note or head over to YouTube. And you can find my channel, Mark Drager YT, or you can look up We Do Hard Things. You can find all our podcast episodes there. Mark's YouTube channel is awesome. So everyone head over there. I have imposter syndrome when I go to Mark's YouTube channel because his editing is badass. So check that out. All right, Mark, thanks for joining us on the podcast. I hope to have you back. Thanks, man. If you'd like to help support the Brand Design Masters podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
Also, if you want to stay up to date on all our content, products, courses, and live video shows, head over to philipvandusen.com muse and sign up for the Brand Muse newsletter. That's where we share all the latest news, resources, articles, books, and videos that we recommend to help you build and improve your creative practice, personal brand, and business. That's philipvandusen.com muse, M-U-S-E. Thanks again for listening. Bye for now.